0: Hi, this is Dan Seaborn, and I want to thank you for using our resources just by you listening to this CD. I know that somewhere and somehow you have purchased or picked up one of our CDs, and I thank you for your support in doing that. And it's, of course, my privilege today to introduce to you my son, Alan, who travels and speaks about areas we can grow in our family life, but also just in general Christian character, and that's what he's going to be doing on this CD Alan is sharing a little bit about how in our society it's such a temptation to cut a corner, to cheat, if you will. Many of us do it sometimes in little ways we don't even really notice. And so as Alan shares this practical biblical guidance for us, I pray it's an area that you'll grow. But also you'll look and say, where in our family life are we maybe cutting the corner? What could I do to make sure I don't come across as a cheater to my kids? It's a big deal. So hopefully as you listen, you will be challenged and encouraged. So now let's join Alan. He was sharing this at a local church, and it was audio recorded, and I hope you enjoy listening to Alan sharing this little message called The Temptation to Cheat.
1: With basketball cards, you have to have this thing, which is a price guide. It's called a Beckett. That's the company that makes it. And this was obviously produced by people who are sports card enthusiasts. Because everything in here, you can look up what the card is worth, and I say that because if a card is worth $10, then that means you can probably sell it for about $2. Now, I think why they did this is because they needed to give people like me and my brother and my dad a justification because everyone around me that goes, man, you're wasting all your money on this stuff, it's worthless. No, 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 it's worth $10, check it out. It's not, but we feel good about it because of that. Well, this price guide, they don't immediately list the prices of the cards. They'll, they'll let the cards come out and see what they're selling and trading for, and after they've traded and sold for about a month or two, then they'll list the price. Well, when I was nine years old, I got a card that, as you see, you know, most of these are kind of basic looking, not real impressive. I got this card right here and it's really shiny, it's really pretty neat looking. It's a rookie card of Jason Kidd. Well, I thought this card probably isn't worth a whole lot, but my brother is three years younger than me, and I can probably convince him that it's a really good card. And so I knew if I went about doing it really obviously it wasn't going to work. So the way I would do it is I would just make sure that whenever Josh was around, he would see me just looking at this card and going, "Man." This is such a nice card. Josh, I'm so glad that I have this card. And over time, he sees me doing it again and again. And finally, one day, he's like, man, you're right. He's like, that card is really nice. I wish I had that card. And I said, well, I think there's something we can do to make that happen. And so we began to organize a trade. I picked out a few of Josh's cards that I liked, and I said, Josh, I'm guessing that this card is probably worth $10, $12 which when you're nine and six years old, that's a big number. So he let me pick out 10 $12 worth of his cards, and we made a trade. Well, about a month later, the price guide comes out. This card is listed in there. The value of this card is $3. Josh was not happy, all right? And he kind of got over it finally. It was a sore subject, but he got over it. Well, about three, four months later, the way the value on these cards changes is if the guy does better than expected, the card goes up. He does worse than expected, the card goes down. Well, Jason Kidd was playing pretty well, and this card went up in one of the newest price guides from $3 to $4. I saw that right away, but I didn't mention it to Josh. And I decided I was going to try to get this card back from him. And I knew in his head, he's got it burned in there. Yeah, this card, I hate this card. It's worth $3. I know that. So I said, hey, Josh, you know, that Jason Kidd card, I'm really starting to miss it. I'd like to get it back from you. And he's like, well, it's worth $3, so give me a $3 card. And I said, okay, I can do that. We figure out a deal, and immediately, because I'm the older brother, it's kind of my job, immediately, as soon as the deal's done, I said, hey, you might want to go look up that card you just traded to me. And he looks it up, and he sees that it's not worth $3 anymore. It's worth $4. And he was mad, and he should have been. I actually, this was 17 years ago that this happened, okay? I sent him a text with a picture of this card earlier this week, and I said, hey, I'm going to tell the story about this card at Central on Sunday morning. He texted me back, and his quote, he put in quote marks so he knew I would share it. He said, this story should disqualify Al from being able to speak at Central, <laughs> all right? He hates this card. There's no question in my mind he would rip it in half right now if I gave it to him. <laughs> All right? And, and as I start thinking back on that, I think about that moment and think about what I did and how, at the time, I thought, ah, it's just cheating a little bit. What's the big deal? I'm just being a little bit dishonest, and it's kind of his own fault because it's really easy to come up with ways to rationalize when we try to cut some corners, when we try to cheat just a little bit. And I don't think very often there are people that wake up one morning and make a big drastic decision to become a person that they never could have imagined being three, four, five years ago. I think that that change takes place just a little bit little bit at a time in the seemingly insignificant decisions that we make when we say that's such a small thing it it doesn't really matter. That's how we slowly become either the people that we really want to be or the people that we really don't want to be. So this morning I want to take a look at a story in scripture of King Solomon. It's a really familiar story. As you know Solomon was the son of King David. And as David was getting toward the end of his life, he had some people around him that said, David, listen, it's really important that before you die, you name a successor to your throne. Because a lot of times an exchange of power and a new king taking the throne can be a really bloody, really ugly process if the current king doesn't make it clear what he wants to see happen. And so David said, all right, I want you My servants, I want you to go and I want you to find my son Solomon. I want you to anoint him king, take him to a public place, and announce to the nation of Israel that this is our new king. Now, I think the story of Solomon starts out on a really high note because immediately we see, as soon as David says this, his servants say to him, King David, we're excited we're praying that God will bless your son Solomon's reign and his kingdom, that it will be even greater than yours. Now, of course, David's servants have to compliment any decision that he makes. That's part of being the servant of a king. But I, I don't think that they would have made that big of a deal, that big of a compliment, if they didn't really think that Solomon could handle it. If they didn't think that this guy had it going on. He was pretty sharp. He was going to be a strong leader. And even when he made decisions that maybe weren't popular, he was going to have the backbone to stick with it. So David's servants take a look and they think, yeah, this is the right guy for the job. And we know from early, early on in Solomon's reign, one of the things he's most famous for is he has this dream where God comes to him and says, Solomon, I want to bless you. What do you want me to give you? And Solomon, even as a young man, knows enough, instead of asking for things or for success or for whatever, he says, God, I need the discernment to wisely guide and lead your people. This is a guy that, that really has it all going on. The story of Solomon starts on a really high note. And the cool thing is that it doesn't go downhill from there because what Solomon does next is something his father, David, had wanted to do. But God had told him, listen, David, I don't want you to build a temple for my name where you go and worship me because you're a man of war. God told David, I want your son to build me a temple. And so Solomon, knowing that that's what God has called him to do, knowing that part of his kingdom, part of building his reign, means building this temple for God, Solomon sets about doing that very early on in his reign as king. And if you read in 1 Kings, the first few chapters, Solomon spares no expense when it comes to building this temple for God. He's importing wood from all over the place, the finest stuff he can find. Almost everything that goes inside, especially in the Holy of Holies, is coated in pure gold. He's he's got man hours working all over the country. He's sending people out to find the finest stone, the finest everything that they can to build this temple for God. And when Scripture tells us that they came to the end of the building of the temple, Solomon, who, as you know, God blessed with unbelievable wisdom and leadership ability, he offered a prayer of dedication for the temple when all of Israel came and gathered together to celebrate what God was doing. And if you have a chance to read the prayer that he prayed, it's absolutely beautiful. It's in its depth and in its passion and in its understanding of who God is and what he wants to do among his people in Israel. Solomon is is just fully aware of the fact that God has blessed him with this kingdom. And that as soon as he takes his eyes off of God, that the kingdom is going to begin to crumble, begin to slip away from his hands. And right after Solomon offers this prayer of dedication, after the temple is finally completed, scripture tells us that Solomon spent seven years building the temple. The very next verse says, However, Solomon spent 13 years building his own palace. And there's no more commentary offered right there. That's all that it says. And I think in many ways the author of 1 Kings is trying to give us kind of foreshadowing of what lies ahead. Because Solomon started off focused entirely on God. And he spent the first six years building, building this temple for God where he could come and dwell among his people. But as soon as that got done, we start to wonder if maybe Solomon's priorities didn't really lie elsewhere as he spends nearly double that amount of time building his own temple or his own palace, his own empire, that people would eventually come from all over the world just to have a chance to see. And well before God had established a king in Israel, he set up some guidelines for what it meant to be a king. In Deuteronomy, when Moses was still around, God revealed to his people, he said, listen, there's going to come a day where you're going to want a king. And when that day comes, here are some guidelines for what this king needs to be all about. And a couple of the things that God established and said that is important for a king of Israel to understand. Number one was that this king of Israel should not be accumulating large amounts of silver and gold. The second thing that God warned the kings of Israel is that they were not to marry many foreign wives because then their hearts would be led astray to follow the gods of these foreign nations. Well, I mentioned earlier that Solomon's really famous for asking for wisdom. But I think what he's even probably more famous for is the fact that he had 700 wives, Now, putting myself maybe not in Solomon's place, but just trying to think how he could rationalize away blatantly disobeying God's command like that. I think if I'm Solomon, I'm probably thinking, hey, you know what? I I totally understand where God's coming from with this warning about not marrying a bunch of foreign people because it's going to make me want to worship their gods, but does he not remember? I'm the one that built the temple. I, I prayed that prayer of dedication. There were people crying there. They know I'm following after God with everything that I have. I don't have to worry about worshiping these other gods. That's not going to be a big deal. And I, I wonder if after he made that small rationalization, he was able to look and go, yeah, and another thing is, you know, God kind of made that rule a while ago, and the world's changed a lot since then. You know, now, really, the reason I'm marrying most of these women is for political reasons. I mean, I'm married to the pharaoh's daughter. You think the pharaoh of Egypt is going to attack me? I'm his son-in-law. He's going to trade with me. He's going to try to set me up. He's going to want to make his daughter's life as great as he can. And I think Solomon was able to easily justify cheating just a little bit, cutting in a couple corners in his mind, because he, he thought, those rules maybe are good for somebody else, but that's not really going to be an issue for me. And so Solomon continues to advance his, his political strength by marrying all these wives from all over the place. It opened up great trade avenues. It gave a time of peace that was unheard of in the ancient world. But what Solomon was doing to build his kingdom was cutting some corners in the way God had laid it out for him. And the thing is, when, it's, when we look at what somebody else does to rationalize away their bad decisions, it never makes a lot of sense to us. So I want to tell you a story about me that happened embarrassingly recently. Uh, last Sunday morning, I spoke out at tri campground in Allegan, and Saturday night before, I was hanging out with my dad. We had actually back to the basketball card thing, we had found a guy that wanted to trade some cards with us. He lives in Grand Rapids, and he couldn't meet up till about 9.30. So we hop in the car, we head over there, and we got to talking to this guy, looking at cards we're trading, and we just kind of lost track of time. Well, my dad got a phone call kind of in the middle while we're doing this, and he answered it, and I could tell that it was my mom on the other end of the phone. And I thought, you know, it's kind of weird because she knows we're doing this deal and she has no interest in basketball cards. She usually just leaves us alone. And it didn't seem like she called for any real reason. And I thought, "Eh, that's kind of weird, but whatever. So he hangs up the phone and we continue our trading. We get on the road and we start heading back home. And while we're driving home, my dad said a couple times in like five minutes, he's like, man, I can't believe it's already 11.15. And I said, yeah, what are you going to do? You know, it gets kind of late. And then five minutes later, he goes, I just cannot believe how late it is. And I said, Dad, why do you keep saying that? And he said, well, your mom called while we were there, and what she called for was she said, Dan, I can't believe you have Alan out this late. You know he has to speak tomorrow morning. All right? I'm 26 years old. (laughs) I was mad. I was mad. I'm like, what is she doing? How did I get this far in life not knowing I have to sleep if I have something the next morning? <laughs> All right? So so we're driving back and I we had left from my parents' house. So when we got back there I had to run inside and grab my keys. Why well, go inside? My mom's up. And she's like she says, "Hey, how's it going? Hey, it's already 11:30 just so you know." I'm like, "Yeah, I've been reminded a couple times on the way home." <laughs> and she's asking me, she says, well, what time does the service start tomorrow? And I said, 10.30. And she kind of leaned back and her eyes got wide and I could see she's doing the math in her head. Like if he goes to bed right when he gets home, is he going to get enough sleep? And so she then, she asked me, well, what time do you have to be there and how far away is it? What time do you have to leave in the morning? And I knew the answer to all those questions, but I didn't want her to know. And I was like, mom, I don't know. Listen, I got to go. So I take off, I get in my car and drive home And I'm mad. And I wake up the next morning and I'm driving out to speak and that thought crossed my mind, what had happened the night before. And I'm mad again. And I'm driving out to talk about a passage that Chris Conrad shared last week when Jesus is telling his disciples that we as Christians are supposed to be known to the world as followers of Jesus by our love. I'm getting ready to talk about that. And I'm mad, driving out there, getting ready to share that. And I'm thinking I'm, to myself on my way out there, I'm like, man, how can I talk about that? After I just was totally not an example of a Christian because of the way I've been loving my mom last night. So I get out there and I start speaking and I wound up telling him the story because I thought, I just, I can't believe what's going on in my life right now. And then I'm here trying to talk about how to love other people. And you know, as I was driving home, I was thinking, man, I got to go over and I got to talk to my mom. I got to apologize. I got to figure this out. And I think it's in those moments right there where we can choose to rationalize away what we decided to do. Because, you know, really, it's a pretty small thing. When I talked to my mom about it later, she actually was like, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. I, I didn't even really think anything of it but it's those small moments when we cheat just a little bit, when we hold on to a little bit of anger, a little bit of bitterness, a little bit of frustration, instead of responding in love and patience and forgiveness the way that we're called to. It's in those little moments that if we choose to cheat, we can find ourselves slowly becoming a person over time that we never could have imagined before. And we find ourselves, just like Solomon, doing something to rationalize marrying 700 women when God said, you're not to marry more than one. We think it's crazy, but we're just as guilty of rationalizing little things away in our minds. Well, Solomon didn't stop just there. He didn't just marry these 700 women and disobey God that way. Another thing that Solomon did Like I said, God had said that a king is not supposed to accumulate large amounts of gold and silver. Well, one of the reasons that people from all over the world wanted to come and visit Solomon, in addition to the fact that he's so wise and they wanted to hear what he had to say, they also wanted to see all of his stuff. Because if you were privileged enough to get into Solomon's palace, to have the opportunity to eat dinner at his table— you would be served with silverware and dishes and cups and serving dishes of pure gold. Solomon actually had so much gold that he started making up decorative shields. He built 200 full-size shields out of gold. Shields, which need to be really hard, gold really soft. When you got that much gold and you're just thinking, Eh, you never have too many decorative shields hanging on the wall. You got a problem. You started to accumulate silver and gold. Once he got done with those big 200, he built 300 little tiny ones just to kind of match, you know, like accent shields kind of thing. And he hangs these all over the place. Well, we find from Scripture that during Solomon's reign, silver, they didn't consider it to be any more valuable than stone because it was all over the place. And here we've got a guy that just recently has dedicated a temple that has said, I'm going to do everything I can to go all out to follow after God. And yet, he chooses to cut some corners. He chooses to cheat in some little things that he thinks are pretty insignificant. But we find in 1 Kings chapter 11 that it turned out to not be so insignificant. This chapter starts out letting us know that Solomon eventually, his heart was led astray. He started to see all the gods that these foreign wives of his were worshiping. And I don't know what it was, but slowly, worshiping those gods, I guess, began to make a little bit of sense to him. Maybe he thought, you know, I might as well worship these gods because if they can help me, eh. We don't know his rationale, but we know that Solomon started worshiping these other gods. And 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4 says, As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. He did not follow the Lord completely. And it started with the really, really little decisions that he thought in the moment weren't going to matter. He thought, it's okay if I cut the corner there. If I cheat a little bit, Because it's not going to matter. But when the judgment came on Solomon's reign as king, it it meant that that little sentence is added in there. He did not follow the Lord completely. And I want to close with a story of a friend of mine. When I was pastoring at a church over in Detroit, I met this guy named Matt. Matt was about my age, and he ran a multi-million dollar landscaping company. And so one day we were hanging out and I said, hey, Matt, tell me a little bit about how you got started in landscaping and how, you know, you're my age and you're running this huge company. And he told me, he said, well, you know, it started out like a lot of people. Um, When I was 14, 15, 16, I was knocking on my neighbor's doors and I was asking them if they needed anything, their lawn cut, their leaves raked, their snow shoveled, whatever. He said, I would do anything. And slowly, I started picking up other little odd jobs. You know? So people would ask me, hey, do you know how to uh, install a fence? And he said early on he learned that even if he didn't know how to do something, he could figure it out. So if they said, hey, will you, do this, will you install this fence? He would say, absolutely not a problem. I'll be there and I'll do it. And then he'd go figure out how to do it, and then he would install the fence. And so he learned how to install a fence. He learned how to install a pond. He learned how to do some bigger landscaping stuff. Finally, when he got to be about 18 or 19 years old, he decided to really go after it. He decided that he was going to put up a flyer with his pictures of some of his best work, with bullet points of a few things that he could do, and he was going to find the nicest neighborhood he could and staple those flyers all over the place. Well, he found a neighborhood that he thought, hey, if someone hires me in here, I'm going to be good to go. He stapled his flyers all over. He got a phone call a couple days later from a lady that said, hey, I've got a pond in my backyard, and I'm wondering if you can come and install a waterfall in that pond. Well, Matt didn't know how to install a waterfall, but he knew he could figure it out. So he said, absolutely, no problem. I'll be there tomorrow morning. He shows up, and he tells me, he says, Alan, when I walked into the backyard with this lady, he said to call this thing a pond was not fair this was the biggest body of water that I can ever remember seeing in someone's yard. He's like, it was a lake in their backyard. And he said, as soon as I saw it, I realized that I was in way over my head. He said, so I started like pacing around this, the outskirts of this body of water. And I was trying to figure out in my head, you know, she thinks I'm measuring it off and looking at how much pipe and how much everything. He said, I was just trying to come up with the biggest number that I could that I was going to tell this lady it would, I would cost her to have me install a waterfall. So he's walking around and calculating and thinking, and he said, I, I got done, and I walked back up to her, and I said, listen, I think I can install a waterfall for $15,000. And he said, I was hoping that that number was going to scare her. I was hoping she was going to say, oh, that's way too much, and I'd be off the hook. He said, but she told me, okay, we're waiting to hear back from a couple other people, and we'll get in touch. So a couple days later, he gets a phone call. And he's laughing when he tells me this. He's like, my bid was the lowest. And he said, by a lot. (laughs) All right? So he shows up the next day, first day on the job. He's got a crew with him. And they kind of try to come up with a game plan as best they know how. And Matt said, I drove straight from there to the library because I knew I was going to have to do a whole bunch of homework if I was going to figure out how to move that much water without making this look like the cheapest, chintziest little waterfall in such a huge body of water. And he said, I I figured out early on that I was going to have to order a water pump that they would normally use in a sewage treatment plant to pump this much water. He said, so I especially ordered it from this place, and I showed up when it came in. I went to get it in my pickup truck. He said, and the guy at the gate just started laughing at me. He said, dude, there's no way that's going to fit in your truck. you got to go rent a dump truck or something. And Matt said that was really the first time that, like before then I thought I was in over my head, but then I knew I was in over my head. So he said, I went, I rented a dump truck, and I came back, got this part. And about a month into this project, he said, I'm realizing that I'm not going to make my money back on this thing. He said, in fact, I realized I was going to lose a lot of money charging $15,000 for this waterfall. And I stopped and I asked him, I said, well, why don't you go back and say, hey, sorry, I was way off on this. I don't really know what I'm doing. It's going to cost a lot more. And he said, no way. He said, this wasn't one of those kind of estimates. He said, I told him this is what it's going to cost. And that's all I was going to charge him. He said, so I came up with a plan and the only thing I could think of was if I would work with my crew from eight in the morning until 5 in the evening, every day working on this waterfall. And then from like 5.30 till midnight, 1 in the morning, I would go work with a different crew on some other projects so that I could have enough income coming in so I could keep renting all the the heavy machinery that I needed, keep buying all the supplies, keep paying my guys. And he said it was the worst summer of my life. He said, I had to to rent an excavator because I had 300 stones that weighed 1,000 pounds each that I had to lift and place in different spots around this waterfall. He said, I was 19 years old, and I got an ulcer that summer from the stress because I'm working like crazy, losing money like crazy. And I said, well, you're saying you're losing a lot of money. I said, how much money did you actually lose? He said, I lost $85,000. And I stopped, And I thought, I must have heard him wrong or he said it wrong. I said, you mean you lost $8,500? And he said, no. He said, it cost me $100,000 to build this waterfall. And I charged them $15,000. And he said, by the time the summer was over, I was so glad to be done with this stinking project. I didn't know if I was going to eventually be a bankrupt landscaper that tried something different or if I was going to barely make it and be able to keep going. He said, but what happened next was this waterfall started to get some attention. He said, "And I, I won an award for the best waterfall design in Metro Detroit. <laughs> All right? And so he, he wins this award for this waterfall. And from there, he won an award statewide, Best Waterfall. Then he got entered into some competition in a a landscape design magazine, which sounds fake to me, but it's real. He won the thing. He won the best waterfall design in the country. And I want to show you a picture of the waterfall. He spent his summer, he spent $100,000 designing this waterfall. And let me tell you that if any place along the way, Matt had decided it's not worth it to do this right, I'm okay with buying maybe some substandard material. I'm okay with doing a pretty good job on this waterfall because if I cut my guys back to just working 30 hours a week, I could save a lot of money. He didn't do that. If he would have cut any corners, if he would have cheated a little bit along the way, that right there is not the end result. Matt told me that after he got this waterfall done and won this award, he started getting calls from all over the country, and people wanted him to come and design stuff for them. And he said, my favorite part was showing up to these meetings of people that want me to d- design just incredibly expensive stuff, and I'm 19. He said, and they would get mad. People, I'm sitting in their office and they're like, look, I'm hiring for this huge project. No offense to you, but why doesn't your boss send a kid? Why doesn't he come himself? And Matt said, I love looking at him and going, no, I'm the guy that made that waterfall. I'm the boss. And uh, that doesn't happen if you cut some corners along the way, if you choose to cheat just a little bit. And I want to tell you that I firmly believe that our walk with God works just the same way. Because along the way, Matt had no idea of the finished product, what the picture of this waterfall was going to look like. In fact, in the moment, he was convinced that every day showing up and every day giving his best was going to leave him broke and leave him bankrupt and leave him not doing landscaping another day in his life. But he knew all along the way that as long as he made the little decision every day to show up to do what he said he was going to do and to do it to the best of his ability— then he was never going to have to make a big decision on what do I do with this project? Do I just not show up one day? Do I just call him and say, hey guys, I'm really sorry. I I did my best and it's not going to work out. He never had to make that big decision because he was making the little decision every single moment, every single day to do the best that he could. And I firmly believe that God's got a picture For our lives, that makes that waterfall look pretty embarrassingly small, pretty weak. But the thing is, we don't get there if day in, day out, the little stuff, if we choose to cheat, if we choose to cut the little corners that we don't think matter and we don't think anyone's going to notice. Because if we learn anything from Solomon's life, it's that we do not want to get to the end of it. And it be said about us that we didn't completely follow God. So I want to take a moment, bow your heads with me. If you're like me, you've got some spots in your life that are are jumping out, where you're going, yeah, I've, I've justified and rationalized a couple of things that obviously are wrong. I've allowed myself over time to become desensitized and think that it's okay. But if someone from the outside were to look at my life, they would understand there's no way what you're doing lines up with God's word. If you've got a spot like that in your life, I've got good news for you. God calls us to a life that follows all out after him. But he doesn't leave us there to do it on our own. He's waiting to help us. He's waiting to give us the strength and the endurance and the patience to do it. But we've got to ask him. Let's take a moment and do that now. God, we thank you for stories in Scripture that we can so easily find ourselves relating to, where we see ourselves and our nature in your word. And God, we have the ability to look and see what a certain course of action, what the end result is going to be. And God, we know that if we choose to cheat, we choose to cut the corners on the little things in life when it comes to following you, God, you're paying attention. And the last thing we want is to get to the end of our lives and to have it be said that we didn't completely follow you. But God, in order to completely follow you, we need a lot of help. We come before you this morning, individually and corporately. God, and we ask you for the strength to, in those small moments, to respond in love, to respond in honesty, to respond with grace and patience and kindness. God, all the things that you've called us to be about, the things that you want our lives to be marked by. As we do that, we know that we point others toward you, We know that we bring honor and glory to you. God, that's what we want our lives to be all about. Help that to be true as we leave this place this morning. God, we thank you. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.